Warning, the following podcast may contain explicit language. It will definitely contain heterodoxy, thought crime, and graphic depictions of alcohol use. Rest assured that at the time of recording this episode, all participants had nowhere to drive. The Cocktail Party Congress encourages you to drink and think responsibly. In vino veritas. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Cocktail Party Congress, the only political discussion podcast to our knowledge with a three-drink minimum. I'm Dan Caves. And I'm JT Andrews. Well, JT, it's been a couple of weeks, uh, but uh, it's, I'm happy to report that we've gotten our first email. We did. Da-da-da-da! I love it. <laughs> I'm super excited. Oh, who, who would have thunk that we would ever get this far? <laughs> Well, I think We're just a couple of drunks with a podcast. I and... know, a couple of fancy schmancy uh, microphones and <laughs> twelve dollars a month to spare for hosting. You know, well, I th- well, if I have to, you know, hawk my microphone for booze, I, I don't know what. I still have my laptop microphone, but we know how well that sounds. We both have smartphones. We can just we can just do <laughs> like voice memos and send them back and forth to each other. <laughs> Well, I figure let's milk this glory for all that we can. I think I'm It's going to take the liberty of reading this email out to you people. Do so. Oh, my dear listeners, I cannot wait. This is the first time I've been able to do this in my life. So here it goes. This email is from Olga, and she writes, Hey, guys, first-time listener, big-time fan. I really appreciate how you guys encourage listening to one another, especially in a time when it's easier to listen for a pause to insert your own opinion. Keep up the great work. 10 out of 10. Thank you, Olga, for your kind words. Olga, thank you. Uh, Here's to Olga. Yes, this sip is for Olga. Oh, yes. Speak, speak, speaking of what we're drinking, what are we drinking tonight? What's our dispatch from Mahogany Ridge? Oh, yeah. We just got that in from the trenches, and it's telling us that tonight's featured cocktail is the Godfather. Oh, well, figure I might as well tell you how to make the Godfather if you want to drink along at home. It's a simple one. Not going not gonna, not, not gonna to require too much buy-in or... Simple and delicious. Yeah, not, not going to require too many ingredients or... Uh, steps to go through to make it what you're going to need are scotch whiskey also i've seen bourbon suggested as a possible stand-in but scotch is traditional and i'm, I'm drinking the scotch i've got it with like scotch, scotch too and uh you're also going to want amaretto and you're gonna take a, a rocks glass or an old-fashioned glass hopefully you bu- hopefully you invested in an old-fashioned glass from episode one mm. so you better have that on hand Put ice in that glass and then add equal parts scotch, whiskey, and amaretto. Give that a gentle stir. Gentle. Gentle. So gentle. Ever so gentle. <laughs> Don't extort fellow Italians. Like the Godfather <laughs> would encourage you to do. Stir that up. 
and you're going to have yourself a delicious drink. I am solidly enjoying the one that I have in my hand right now. It's simple. It's sweet. Uh, the scotch gives it that element of, I would say, peatiness. Oh. A little bit of s- smoky flavor, almost. Yeah. Uh, you get that more so with the bourbon. But. For Yeah, for my first drink, I had it with some bourbon that I had on hand, and it had a, it had a far oakier palette to it, and I got a stronger nose. Uh, listen to us, a couple of pretentious bastards talking about this stuff. But <laughs> all I can really tell you for sure is that it is a delicious drink. That's my honest opinion. It may not, and like our podcast, we may not always give you the correct opinion in your opinion, but you can rest assured that you're getting an honest one. Yeah, I'll give you that, and this drink is fantastic. I, actually, um, when we when Dan pitched the idea of doing the Godfather for the next cocktail, I immediately made myself one, and I was just like, this is really good. I know. I, I'm surprised we did, haven't tried this combination before. It's really good. Yeah. I usually don't keep Amaretto around. but Neither do I. Yeah, this, I'll cook with it, but yeah. I, I seldom drink it. This is a perfect excuse. And if you've never if you've never experimented with Amaretto, go for it, because this is a delicious drink. Oh. oh well. So good. I th- well, well, also be care be careful because I think like at the last uh, at the end of last episode the French seventy fives were really having their way with us. I feel like. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it, those are pretty strong. Yeah, they are. I picked them, but I have to call you on a point of order, JT. Never, oh, great. ever admit to being drunk on microphone what are you doing (laughs) that is a privilege that you get to enjoy because i am going to institute in this podcast the same rules that exist in the british parliament do you know what that is there we go uh i do know what it is but i know that our many of our listeners probably don't so please enlighten them oh please i am honored to do the honor of honoring you with this story so uh it's a lot of honor i know well (laughs) the british parliament used to have an operating bar on its grounds you know it was you know it was more socially acceptable in one point in history for people to drink and for professionals to drink on the job including politicians and so there is a rule in the british house of commons might be in the house of lords too but definitely in the house of commons there are two things that you cannot directly accuse a fellow member of parliament of and they are directly lying you cannot say that you know the right honorable jameson bigglesworth (laughs) is lying about this you also cannot accuse a fellow member of parliament of being drunk that can get you ejected from the chamber even to this day (laughs) so to get also, the House of Commons is much more entertaining to watch than uh, our our typical C-SPAN and even the House of Lords. But oh, it is House of Commons. It's such an entertaining show. If you're if you're having insomnia and you have access to C-SPAN, pull up. I think it's like Wednesdays they do Prime Minister's questions, where the Prime Minister actually has to go in front of the House of Commons and get like heckled, like not just answer <laughs> questions, but like, they're practically yelling at him. Wouldn't that be the world? Yeah, wouldn't that be a lovely world for us to live uh, in America? It's a joy to watch. Oh, I mean, for instance, we just just a week or so ago, we had the dear leader gave this, you know, the the State of the Union address, and my goodness, like the the amount of like forced reverence that is demanded of them nowadays, it's just there was there was no yelling, no booing, no cheering, you know. It's, no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, not, there was applause, but not enough, apparently. 
Apparently there was a treasonous lack of applause from certain people in that chamber, but ah, we're getting off topic. Uh, yeah. Speaking of topics... I don't think I don't think I've had enough to discuss that just oh, yet. Oh <laughs> no, no, and we we're we're gonna stick to our to our thesis statement for mm. this episode. Here we go. And that thesis statement is, and yeah, I'll, I'll read it because I have it on my screen already. What? And you can, uh, JT, please complete this if you have anything to add to this statement. What are? Right, here we go. What are America's values, and how are we living up to them? Yes, uh, what what values really define us as Americans, and what are they now? What should they be? I think that's really at the heart of our argument. Yeah, yeah, that's a that, that's a good summation of of that little the little right. ditty I just put out there. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've I've developed is uh, I've, I've got a whole list of it right here. But oh, I've uh, got notes. <laughs> you, yeah. you're, you're not. Oh, I've got notes. You're not the only one with notes. Yeah, I th- I think that. Uh, there's an important distinction that has to be made between what does our government value and what do our people value. Sometimes those views uh, are very, very uh, similar to one another, but sometimes they differ. Uh, and we have to actually put these values in somewhat of a historical context. You know, why do we be- believe what we believe? Why does the government believe what it believes? Um and it really almost begs, begs the question is, does the government, does the government's values really reflect the the will of the people? Are, are they really representative of the values that the, the American people hold? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting question. question but. Yeah, that's interesting, interesting to think about. Um, I think that this is a really important question for us to ask. And I, I get like... There's a danger in talking about what are America's values. So it's going to get very like West Wing, very very like f- very lofty. Like we're going to talk about all of the all of the glittering generalities that we've sort of put out into our culture and that we're taught in school. To and I, I think that right. it's important to to really reflect on what those values actually are how we're living up to them, and how do they manifest themselves in our system. Because something that I've learned over the years is that any law or rule that's really worth following and that we most often, like the ones that we most agree on, they're usually an expression of a higher principle. And we can get into what I mean by that as we sort of work through this conversation. Mm-hmm. But uh, right. the value system of the American people should be manifest in especially its constitution. I brought up the old fart Orestes Brownson last uh, <laughs> well, last episode, and I'm going to keep bringing him up until I finish his book, The American <laughs> Republic. But his central argument in that book, like in the last episode, I brought up a side point, really. Uh, yeah, this is the but the meat of the argument, as it were. His main argument is that there is a written constitution, which is the you know the two hundred and forty year old piece of parchment that we all you know let's just say pay lip service to nowadays, and then that is actually a representation of what he refers to as the unwritten constitution, which is the sum of the political culture and the value system of the people who created 
that constitution. And so in order to understand what we have in our hands when we have our pocket constitutions and waving them around in the face of, you know, anybody who wants to listen. And <laughs> when, when we think about where America came from, where it is now, and where we might want it to go in the future, we have to think about our value system. And that's, that's something that we don't pay too much attention to. And hopefully we can, we can try to expand on that throughout our, throughout our discussion this evening, uh, this evening's symposium, you know, since we're having our, our, you know, Hellion, our Hellenic libations to, to, to fuel the, fuel the, the conversation. Uh, well, JT, you had an interesting point before I started on, on my rant. So maybe you could, maybe you could continue on with, uh, well, something you may I, have had. I think that, uh, government values and the values of the people don't necessarily coincide with one another, but uh, a lot of what happens in government, uh, especially for politicians who want to get reelected, they have to somehow reflect the values of the people that they represent. Um, But at the same time, they also are uh, almost subject to their own rules and their own value system. some of the things that both the American people and the government want to see is a strong economy. You know? uh, but uh, we have to ask ourselves, do the ends of, do the ends justify the means in the government's case? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there an expense of human dignity? We saw such in the, uh, think about the American Civil War. We were, the American South had an economy that was uh, required slavery to maintain it. Uh, they were effectively putting their economy ahead of human dignity Mm. and human rights. And they were willing to put their human rights on the back burner for the sake of the economy. So really, do the ends justify the means? And I say no. Mm. Uh, But oftentimes in the government, you do see that. You do see that the ends do justify the means in their eyes. But I do think that a strong economy is something that both the people and the government want to have. Mm. Now, quite often, the major debates over uh, rights and values, uh, you could say that individual rights are a value of the American people and also the a value of the American government, but there's a huge debate over what it really means. Like, what does it mean to be individually free? Mm. What responsibilities come with that freedom? Mm. Uh, We often see this with uh, uh, people who tout religious freedom. But what does it really mean to them? It means that they don't have... It means that uh, for some elements further further along on the right-hand side of, of the political spectrum, they see that religious freedom is essential... But it also gives them the right to disparage other groups. So really, they, they say that we deserve the right to be religiously free and screw all these other guys. You know, mm-hmm. it's... We want to go... This idea of religious freedom, I feel like it's going to be the topic of, of, a, uh, of a future show. Yeah, that's a future show in and of itself, yeah. Right. And I think uh, faith actually does come down to one of the values of the American people is uh, either 
current faith or the idea that America was founded on Judeo-Christian values. I feel like that really comes out in in both government and in uh, the values of the people themselves is this uh, idea of a Judeo-Christian nation, mm. which I debate. I, I don't think that we were ever intended to be one. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question that I we will table it, but we will table it with a vengeance because I do want to talk about that. <laughs> I've got I've got some thoughts about that. That that could almost be a two part. That could that, that could be an entire podcast. But <laughs> that's an interesting thought. Um, I think that, and I actually want to respond to two two parts of what you like. The first part where you were talking about the primacy of economic growth being a value in and of itself, and what that might actually translate to in practicality. I think for uh, e- e- this is a pet peeve of mine. It's the idea that economics has taken a primacy in our thinking and that that is the value system that we need to have. I think that economic systems make absolutely rotten value systems. I agree. And if you notice that when, when you have an economic system of, I think any kind that doesn't have a separate value system behind it, it tends to create misery on a certain scale. You'll see that in when you've got that Randian idea of capitalism as a a value system in and of itself. That creates it's a very unique and very dirty set of problems. I think even when something like even socialism, when it comes to when that is the end in and of itself and it doesn't have a separate value system guiding it, that generally turns into hell on earth and i think that if you lose track of your value system you knock the slats out from under your society and throw away your value system and decide to take this um this idea that material well-being is the sum total of that's the measure of of your citizen's happiness that is a that's a very dangerous idea in my mind. Right, it, materialism capitalism, is not capitalism and communism and socialism and all of those taken like all of them have that problem. E- yes, e- they, economic systems they put, are not value systems. Yeah, they put the economy at the forefront and put actual liberty in in the background. I mean, the economy should not be first and foremost of our values. It needs to be backed by other values. Mm-hmm. The ideas of the preservation of liberty, having a, I mean, we want a fair and we want a free economy, but we should have a fair economy, mm. uh, something that doesn't disparage other people. Uh, we need to put an end to things like neo-colonialism, which we are, we have been so good at. And speaking about the, the topic of materialism, uh, I feel like that is something that really manifests itself in American culture is this idea of excess uh, we have the because our economy is so strong, we have the ability to be excessive. We are very materialistic, and it, it's it's like you go out to to see your neighbor, and your neighbor's uh, n- your neighbor just bought a new uh, a new RV. So you go out and buy a bigger one, and he trades his in and gets an even bigger one. And uh, we're always trying to outdo one another in sort of this hyper masculine materialistic culture mm. that we have. Uh, 
And I think that's that's almost a sign of toxic values amongst the people that we're we're not we always have to have the biggest and the best. I mean, we are not uh, focusing on the values that really matter, mm. that uh, we really should be upholding wow. the, the matters of individual rights yeah. and understanding what it actually does mean to have rights, what it does mean to <laughs> what it means to be responsible to wield those rights. Mm. Um, but instead, we only focus on the economy, and that's a very dangerous place to be. Well, yeah, you use that word liberty earlier on in your your commentary, and I think those are on that is on my list. But I have it, I have it written out here that liberty and justice as a a sol, as a a defined set. I think that those two words cannot be separated. Uh, Liberty and justice for all, for all you want to say about, you know, the creepy idea of facing the flag and pledging allegiance to it. But I think that those words are very, are just double plus important to our, to, to, to our culture and, and that you need both. You, you, too often we're fed one or the other. You can have your liberty, you can have your rights, or you can, and the, the other side of that, we were using the. Yeah, you were, you were using the word responsibility. I think justice, and ah, that's a philosophical discussion for another day. That, what that is really justice? Is. Also, how many times I, I was forced to read Plato's Republic? I still haven't answered that question. What is justice? But <laughs> but I, I think as also if, as if, terms, if our listeners if our <laughs> listeners are wondering, I'm wondering as well if the uh, new copy of the Newspeak Dictionary is available on sale at your nearest Barnes and Noble. <laughs> Oh, always. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's going to be you're going to get new speak in this podcast. It's it's going to happen. Get used to it, comrades. Uh, but but liberty and justice, we're, we're too often fed one or the other. You're going to have very liberty minded people who are only talking about your rights, your rights, your rights. And then you're going to get a backlash of law and order types like we see in the dear leader. That was part of his. That was part of his campaign in 2016 is he he painted a picture of an America in chaos and that he was going to restore law and order and justice and all of this. But you cannot have only one of those take precedence over the other. You need both of them. They cannot be separated because think about it. Both of them make up the scales of justice. Exactly. And, 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 And think of it this way. Imagine a society where you have one completely without the other. Liberty without justice is anarchy. It's going to be like Hobbes' state of nature. Anybody can do anything. There are no limitations. Only, only the whims of, of human appetite. And if your liberty infringes on mine, that what, what recourse do I have? There would be no justice in that. Our worst natures would come out under that sort of a condition. And then the other side of that... I'm sorry, I keep talking over. I was gonna say it's it's a dangerous spot to be in. Amen. Like we, you have to have a sense of liberty in order to have a sense of justice, and a sense of justice to understand what liberty actually means. Mm. And and to get to the other side of of my point there, liberty, uh, justice without liberty is tyrannical, and and this gets back to what I was talking about of any rule or law worth following being the expression of a higher principle. Justice without liberty is 
essentially the letter of the law strictly read. And that will often undermine the spirit of the law if you don't keep... And, and that's exactly another way to, to, to sort of imagine the point I made, is that there's the letter of the law and there's the spirit of the law. And I, I strongly believe that the spirit of the law might matter more than the letter of it. I, don't, I can agree to that. Yeah, and I think understanding the principle behind a rule or a law is going to be vital in either justifying the continuance of the repeal or the introduction of a law or a rule. And I think that that's something that we're noticing in our, in our current climate where we're seeing laws and policies passed where there is a, a stated principle that really doesn't match up with the implications and the inferences made from what that law or rule or policy is going to is going to result in. Correct. We've seen that with the last uh, what is now at this time uh, two government shutdowns. Yeah, this year we keep in the first two months. We keep recording uh, in the in, in the wake we, of government shutdowns. This one only lasted a few hours, but <laughs> yeah, just a couple of hours. But um, I think it's it speaks to what it seems like the government values is this. Uh, really twisted sense of responsibility over the government, over the country, over the economy, where instead of actually doing something about it, I mean, the most recent economic, um, this spending package only covers two years. I mean, it's not not a very long-term spending package. And I feel like all these short-term spending packages that we put together, it's a lot like punting the ball. On, four, on fourth and inches, uh, we just punt the ball down the road and expect the expect us to figure it out later. And it's it's really not a sign of a a government with a decent set of American values or what should be American values. I mean, we're not they're not concerning themselves with the American people. It seems like they don't care about. Uh, these people who have jobs with the government, they don't care if they get paid or not. It's they're effectively hijacking and holding hostage all of these all of these people just because they refuse to play nice to, to each other. Mm. They refuse to compromise on uh, any sort of issue. Mm. We've seen bipartisanship just go out the window, and it's pretty much what's mine is mine. And what's yours is negotiable. That it seems what uh, it's how the uh, how these shutdowns and these spending packages have manifested themselves. You you mentioned compromise, and I think this is a perfect opportunity for me to jump down my list. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is I think that is an essential American value, and it's one that is a bit of a to use a cliche a double edged sword. Uh, it's it's in non-existential matters and non non like super duper moral matters compromise is a necess- is an absolute necessity for go- good government but there is a dark side to it there is there is i mean th- the existence of slavery in our early republic was itself a compromise i mean the story of oh i i might be i might be blowing my chances at ever winning 
winning the South if I ever enter politics in the future. <laughs> but a lot of our history has been begrudgingly keeping our mouths shut about what the slaveholding states were up to and then the former slaveholding states were up to. And it was essentially, we wouldn't have had an earlier republic if we weren't willing to compromise on on having that as part of the system for a while. But it was a, it, you cannot say that that was a good thing. That is the dark side of compromise. Uh, and, but now we're in a position where we're willing to dismiss compromise in exchange for ideologically like ideological purity and we're seeing more and more ideological purity demanded of our politicians in today's politics that is also dangerous right and, um, and now yeah that's not to say that uh you should compromise your own value system yeah yeah like but like i said non-existential matters it's necessary but if you're talking about something as global as owning people degrading the humanity of people things like that you cannot compromise on something like that there is a ceiling to that but there sh- on the other end of it you you absolutely need to be able to compromise and actually something that <laughs> we've been seeing the shutdowns more and more since do we need to bring back earmarks i i know <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> I know that those, th- those were abused quite a lot in, until they got rid of them. But I feel like that 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 at one point in our history was the mechanism of compromise, because now you can't go to someone on the other party and say, you know, vote for this bill and we'll make sure that you get your your road paving project in your district and other right. like you you don't have that kind of trading between between people like if we didn't have stuff like that if we didn't have earmarks if we didn't have a certain level of very well controlled corruption let's just call it <laughs> yeah you that, you may that's not exactly what it is. you may not have seen some of the some of the most important compromises of of the last century i mean i don't think you would have seen the civil rights act passed without you know lbj being able to go to capitol hill and say give us this and we'll give you that and also getting right up in the face of people and, you know, his big swinging dick way of doing things and <laughs> yeah, holding. L- LBJ was well known for that. LB- LBJ was a whole bag and of snakes, but. He was an, H- he was an HR nightmare. Just really, <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, my goodness. The Me Too stories about Batman, if it were, if he had a frigging oh, time machine. But, I, you know, compromise does require a little bit of that, I think. Because you have to be willing to have. Well, without earmarks, there's not much to give in exchange for for a deal. Right. It's like we will compromise our values if you compromise your values and both sides say no. And the other side's just like, yeah, just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And in the meantime, and in the meantime, throughout all of this, actual people are suffering because of this. Actual people are not being paid. Yeah, yeah, soldiers, sailors, Marines are not getting paid because people are not willing to work together uh, to solve our problems. It turns them into pawns. Because, yeah, yeah, and it's it's really degrading to people like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's degrading to be used as a political pawn. <clears throat> Military parade. And, <clears throat> yeah, about that. Uh, <laughs> another about another that. topic for another show. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've had enough Godfathers in me for that. No. One. Oh man. 
But anyway, um, I think that uh, talking about uh, the ideas of liberty and justice, working hand hand in hand, and how that should be an American value, Mm. I feel like what also should be an American value is this idea of, I would say, a distaste for tyranny in any form, Mm. be it... Uh, be it through some sort of, you know, liberty without justice in an, um, in a state of anarchy, uh, almost the tyranny of the whims and wists of just whoever is out there, to justice without liberty and with, with pretty much a a strong leader, just coming out and declaring law. And executing it, regardless of what ends it actually obtains. I think we might be alluding I, to the rule of law as a value. I, I believe that is the that that is the term for it. That is practically that is the definition of a republic, which is what we should be. Mm. Is we are ruled by our laws. Yeah. We should not be ruled by you know. We should not be ruled by the mob by a mob, and we should not be ruled by a dictator. Yeah, we're, and we're a republic. And the rule of law is especially fascinating to me because it is it so it's the idea that everyone, even the president, everyone in the government, the president is also beholden to the law, and the the reason we do that is kind of a an, an admission to ourselves that really speaks to my dark side, which is that we place the law outside of ourselves so that we know that we aren't always good things happen we're, we're we're apes we we are we have tendencies that are not good and we need to be able to place systems of responsibility outside of ourselves and something that we can sort of outsource that that responsibility out to for when we are out of our minds and doing something that is that, that is wrong and motivated but also kind of natural it's like a very psychological reaction to things we need to be able yeah. to to place a system that will keep us from indulging that i i, I think lincoln this... called it like the better angels of our nature that's what the law this... represents this actually brings me back to a, uh, a topic I was discussing a while back about uh, uh, capitalism and communism. Mm. And I, after giving it some thought, I realized that both of them have the same flaw, and that is just an outlook on human nature. In, the, in a capitalist society, we feel that uh, prices will be driven lower and quality of life will improve because people are... Uh, n- it views that people are naturally bad, that they're greedy, that mm. they're self-indulgent, and that they're not going to work with everybody. They're just going to work by themselves uh, to make the most out of everything, to make the most profit. And that, that'll drive prices down through competition. What communism believes, on the other hand, especially Marx, uh, <laughs> I have to hand it to Marx. He had a very, very optimistic outview <laughs> of uh, human nature. Uh, you believe that everybody's naturally altruistic and always willing to work together. They're naturally human beings. They're naturally creative uh, creatures, 
and they're going to use that to their advantage to work together to make a better society. Um, and both sides suffer from that same flaw. With a capitalistic society, you see that people are always, are willing to work together. That's why we get monopolies. We get uh, uh, these gigantic corporations and these trusts that are built up between people that are worked together to drive out all competition so that they are the ones left up on top. And communism, they think that everybody's willing to work together, but there's always somebody that is greedy. There's always mm. somebody that's going to to exploit that power mm. uh, and exploit that that the goodness in human nature. And that's where you get into the uh, the really centralized, almost di dictatorships that should be uh, re really uh, communist utopias, hmm. I would say. That's really interesting. Uh, uh, I, that kind of gets back to my previous point that just e economic systems make for rotten value systems. They do. And that your, your, point, your point illustrates something I've been thinking about, which is that Economic uh, ideologies, generally, economic or otherwise, they are incomplete analyses of reality, but they're treated as though they have a f like a totality or a finality to them, and then that's where a lot of misery comes from. Is when that gets applied, out you know, outside of its, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Out outside of its. Um, it's validity. Like it, it, it doesn't have the kind of validity that you would need in a value system to actually act upon. It has that very narrow interpretation of reality that completely blinds you to other qualities that we have. The points that you were making about the assumptions that capitalism and Marxism make about human nature, those are both true. It's just that they are both true. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing is that each of those ideologies denies that the corollary exists in us we are inherently we are not just inherently good we are not just inherently selfish we are inherently complicated and we're inherently both yeah and that's survivalistic is a good way to put it is we're looking yeah. out for best interest but we know that in order to get that we have to work together yeah yeah Ah, oh, this is why I have such a soft spot for Machiavelli because he has <laughs> no. Every everybody jumps to the prince when you they, yeah. when they think of yeah, Machiavelli, but man, he had a lot more to say about human nature and about how how political systems should relate to it. And he he was a republic. He was a small R Republican when you actually jump into the nitty gritty of his work, and his conception of of politics was one that that made allowances for the fact that sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad, sometimes we're not sure which way we're going on that question. And it, it almost leads us into paradoxes. Like, for example, we, we seem to, like, uh, Americans seem to distrust our own government, yet paradoxically we want the government to do more about our problems. Yeah, yeah. Balancing that is 
difficult. And it's one of the things that makes life interesting. And denying that about ourselves, denying the fact that we're that complicated is is one of the things that leads to, he, to evil in the world, I think. Right. We're, we're very compli- complicated creatures, <laughs> and we need to work together. Like, we need to... Uh, under we need to come to understand each other's value systems. Mm. Everybody has an individual value system. It could be great. It could be terrible from different perspectives. But we need to come to understand them. Yeah. And in order to it, once you understand them, then compromise becomes possible. Communication becomes possible. Instead of just speaking to a brick wall that is built up with. Uh, the ideology of the other side that refuses to budge no matter what, let's break down those walls. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out what what we understand, what we can understand about each other. And that'll make us be- better able to communicate, better able to understand each- where each other is coming from, and we'll actually make compromise po- possible for the rest of us in our government and in our everyday lives. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think I agree with that. So, so we were talking about the rule of law before going off on that lovely tangent, um, <laughs> and, and a point that I, I've been thinking about, and one that oh, it's just, I've been trying to find the right way to phrase this, without engaging in whataboutism, but he, <laughs> here it goes. I, I think, I think often that, the phrase the rule of law as a value, I think it gets cheapened. Because it's used all too often in partisan back and forths where we care about the rule of law when we dislike those in power, but then we're all too likely to excuse it when we support those in power. And I think that undermines the credibility of that of of the rule of law and of that claim. It needs to be consistent and it needs to rise above partisanship. The example that had me thinking about this is recently oh so last in 2006 no was it in 2016 or 2017 that the congress passed a bill that imposed new sanctions on the russian federation for having allegedly um and i use that word just in the most technical sense when the russian federation meddled in our political culture and tried with how whatever results there may have been to influence our election. So the Congress passed new sanctions against uh, important oligarchs in the Russian system. And recently, the president has decided that he's not going to enforce those those sanctions for yes for, for highly motivated reasons and for Dan, for, for, Dan, uh, for obvious like that, bullshit reasons. I feel like that was actually I think that was this year actually okay, so, that that happened because uh, I remember it was there were a grand total between the House and the Senate there were five people that voted against these sanctions okay. in the House and the Senate and then. So overwhelming support for additional sanctions on the Russian Federation. And then uh, the president vetoed it. The president said no. But they overrode the veto. And, and it came to that point. Yeah. But but now, and it was very recently that the president, that the dear leader was, was saying that he wasn't going to enforce them. And I've been seeing the phrase 
constitutional crisis thrown around in eh, social media. I mean, what can you really? Yeah. One of the problems, <laughs> if I can just get on a soapbox real quick, one of the problems that I have with our political culture right now is that taking a screenshot of a tweet has become an argument. And it's become, like, it really isn't. Like, all, all you're doing is sharing a meme. And isn't that, like, you're not making an argument. You're not making a, like, make your point. Don't just, but I've been seeing that in in screenshots of that type. And, and, and it makes me just boil under my collar because we have accepted presidents declining to enforce congressional acts all the time. And it just depends on who you who you support. Right. Bat, we, we saw that we saw that with Obama, and we pres- see that with this current. President. Yeah, President Obama declined to enforce the Defense of Marriage Act. He de- he declined to enforce certain immigration regulations. He although he he was one of the one of the most prolific deporters of humans uh, <laughs> d- during his administration. Um, potentially more. Well, he's had eight. He had eight years on the Deer Leader right now, but. Um, I, I think that we'll see what comes of that. He he declined to enforce. Uh, eh, he probably pr- probably support of this. He declined to enforce uh, federal marijuana regulations in states that had legalized it, just to see what would oh, happen. Oh, that's a fact. But w- <laughs> were those constitutional crises? The president was was declining to enforce a congressional act. Maybe they were. That's the thing. But the point that I wanted to make about that is. Maybe those are constitutional crises, but my call is to respect the Constitution and the rule of law no matter who has the power. Supporting, call, I, I would support calling the, the dear leader not enforcing Russian sanctions. I would be willing to call that a constitutional, a constitutional crisis, but I would be more willing to call it that when I was, if I were confident that those making those cries now would not excuse or ignore the next Democrat to make a similar decision. That is true. I think that there are certain that that's one of my things that I would not compromise on for partisan reasons is I, I, I if you're going to hold up the Constitution as a as something that must be absolutely enforced and defended, be consistent. I'm not asking for complete consistency in all things. I'm not asking for for, for just blind nonpartisan loyalty, you can't expect that of people. But no, that that's a line that I want to make in the sand right there. Is like the rule of law should be the rule of law, no matter who is president, no matter who has the Congress. And I would like to see right. more consistent. Unfortunately, the, we don't have the time to really worry about the, what what your future acts and statements are going to be about that. Yeah, I mean. W- Let's take a look at uh, some of the immigration policies and even uh, this recent decision to uh, allow offshore drilling off the coast of California. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actually draws into Tenth Amendment ideas of states' rights. Uh, here you have the federal government decrying that they demand that the states enforce federal policy uh, in terms of immigration. It's like, we want you to seek out uh, these illegal immigrants and deport them. And the states, in some cases, are telling them, no, that's if you want them deported, you do it yourselves because we don't agree with your actions. And it's not up. It's if you're going to make a federal decision and going to enforce federal policy with 
you already have a department of federal agents that is responsible for doing this. We are not going to help you. Like we, mm. we won't hinder you, but we are not going to help you. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that, uh, ironically that they, they sort of did, they did this in the eighties, uh, when, uh, Reagan allowed, uh, offshore drilling off the coast of California, uh, there were these groups in San Francisco that actually figured out how to put an end to it. And what they did was they utilized the local zoning laws because they know that offshore drilling mm. and offshore oil collection requires onshore sites in order to export the oil. Absolutely. So they actually put it up to a vote of the, the people of San Francisco uh, voted against it. They voted against allowing, uh, using zoning laws, they voted against the oil companies opening up all sorts of collection facilities and all the other infrastructure they needed on the shore because it fell within their right to do so. It was, uh, the federal government was trying to do these steps and the people who lived there, who actually lived there, said, no, we don't want that. Mm. That's really interesting. And, and and I think that that is a, that sort of is a value of American people is sort of... Uh, this dis- almost a distrust of the government, but uh, they're willing to handle things at the local level when the federal level or the state level uh, is ineffective. Uh, they they it's almost like that fighting against a central power, they're mm-hmm. fighting against authoritarian authoritarianism and uh, from a higher level, and they're handling it at a local level. And that's been something that's been absolutely fascinating about the. The Trump administration, everybody take a drink. Uh, my counter just went up to five. We just had <laughs> we just had our fifth mention of, of his actual name. Of his, and the president would like me to mention his name. Oh, please. Uh, that, that's been something that's been fascinating about this administration is that you've started seeing more and more Democratic progressives, people on the left, taking up the idea of states' rights. That That's something that that phrase especially has been so wrapped up in first slavery and the civil war and then segregation that it's it's been a very toxic phrase but we're starting to see people on the left actually take it seriously that maybe there's something to having having more local authority take care of certain things after after almost a century of centralization of power like it, it's it's actually really refreshing to me to see that 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 yeah, they're seeing the it's, worth in having, at least at the state level, like a real fight over federalism. It, it's not just fighting over the crown jewels at the federal level. It's like, wait a minute, we have these organs of change and of of policy right at our fingertips at the state level. This is amazing. Let's try to right. do something more with it. I mean, you have all these federal acts. I know the the current administration was trying to. Uh, I believe they actually successfully. Uh, got rid of a lot of our national monuments, um, oh, and there was right. this hu- huge there was huge fights at the federal level about whether these the should stay national monuments, whether or not. But did anybody think to ask what do the people who live there think? I don't oh, think really? anybody did. Yeah, right. I, I don't think anybody <laughs> bothered to ask. Hey, you folks who actually live here, what do you want? Oh no, yeah. And and I don't I don't think anybody at the federal level asked that. And it's really reflective of that that culture that we 
the government is sort of valuing this strong central power Mm -hmm. and constantly uh, butting heads with uh, state and local officials Mm -hmm. over what should occur in their backyards. I agree with that. I agree with that. And talking about the centralization of power, I think um, we can get back into the civics course of <laughs> uh, of what we're sort of talking about. I mean, separation of powers is another like that. I would call that a value. I, I would call that an American value. On uh, like, we're not great at so it, nice. but it's it, it's the <laughs> it's, I, there. it's the idea that the. Well, the idea still exists, whether we're living up to it or not. And it's, it's the idea that the accumulation of power is dangerous. We, we know not to trust ourselves, to go back to our point about, uh, about you know, human nature and everything. We, we know not to trust ourselves, and we've seen historically that go wrong so many times. We're not good all the time, and we have motivations that kind of scare us. So, so we keep we have laws. Yeah, and so we keep the powers of... We, we keep the most important powers separated between different positions and different branches of government. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I agree that. So the, uh, who was it? Edin Burke who said that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think that power, power itself doesn't necessarily corrupt, but it attracts corruption. I much prefer Abraham Lincoln had a quotation that nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you really want to test a man's character or a woman, let's just rewrite history and add that in, give him power, give him or her power. That's the real test of a person's character. Actually, that brings me to a point that I wanted to make about what should our American values be. And I think it is a respect for power and a respect for office. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. are elected into office, you are suddenly given a power and with that a responsibility. And I think we should have a respect for that. If, for example, if I am elected, let's say I am elected dictator of the world for some <laughs> reason, not going to happen. But I have to understand like the responsibilities that I am now I now have, that I am responsible for all of these people. I am responsible for their well-being and realize that my actions have real consequences. Mm. And, and I think that's something that we need to have as a value, is a, is a respect for, for power when it is given to us. And, and I think that that went into the framing of the Constitution and the framing of the presidency especially, because I, in the last episode I made a point that the founders made a study of the decline of the Roman Republic in, in, in conceptualizing our early republic and our new constitution. And one of the things that they noticed was, under normal circumstances, the executive power of the Roman Republic was invested in the office of consul. And there were always two consuls. There was a requirement that they always agree on courses of action. This was like collegiality was an important value to the Romans in political matters. But they also understood that there was a necessity in times of emergency that you can't exactly have two people agreeing to deal with a crisis. They're going to be bickering over it. They're going to be fighting over the glory of dealing with the problem. So they had the there was an official office in the Roman Republic of dictator. And it was a six month term. And they basically had legal immunity to do whatever they needed to do to settle the crisis that 
ended up destroying the Republic, but the founders, the framers, they understood the need to have a unitary executive at some level. Like, uh, the president can't wait for a congressional declaration of war to repel an attack, something like that. So you needed to have an office that was separate from the human occupying it, that exactly as you said, the office was what you respected and what, like, the, the gravity of what you were being asked to do as a president had to under, had to, like, flow through your your understanding of what it means to be president and we we don't really have a president right now who understands that or respects it it's very much sure. it's very much personal power for him mm-hmm. yeah. another thing that i think that we should really value uh is there's a term that's out there uh, a phrase or a uh a word called autodidact. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word. I, I love that word too. And it means somebody who is uh, self-educated. And that I think is something that we don't really have in America is, is uh, the feeling that education is 100% good. Mm. We're always talking about, think about high school f- sports teams, that they're always given the more money than... Uh, the humanities, they're always given more money in the science department, and it's just like we we've given ourselves to this really hyper-masculine culture hmm. where education just goes on the back burner, much like the economy does in, in uh, the bigger government sense. Uh, but I think that we should value education. We should value self-education. The ability to go on... I can go on the internet. I now have the I now have the accumulation of the world's knowledge. The entire human race's knowledge is at my fingertips. And, of course, I use it for cat videos. <laughs> but I think I think that is a, a value that we should be uh, proud of, and it should be a value that we use in our everyday lives, is the right, almost the right to better ourselves. Oh, always. The, the, the right to life. Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We should be able mm. to pursue our happiness through our our own education, making sure that uh, uh, we have access to information, that we're able to absorb all of this knowledge from other people and read about the histories of other people and read things that maybe some people don't like. And we have this right to better ourselves is what I feel. That yeah. that should be one of our values, is the right to better ourselves. Yeah. Which goes along, I would say, the unwritten constitution. We have that right to the pursuit of happiness and the right to life. Mm, that That's oh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Uh, that phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just, just, to, just to back up and address your original point about mm-hmm. education, I mean, yeah, you can go onto YouTube and take an entire college course. Like, you can, you can get lectures of entire, entire college courses on, on YouTube. For free. For free. That is absolutely bananas that you can do that. And it is something that, you know, I am lucky to have a job where I can just plug in my headphones and work for eight hours. So for... <laughs> 
I'm I'm not I shit you not JT for the last eight years almost since I've had this job I I have essentially consumed hundreds if not thousands of hours of information and it has been life altering and I encourage everyone to take whatever time they may have spare in their lives do even do like an hour a day of something like that and you will find your mind opened beyond your imagination it is just utterly amazing the access to information that we have these days yeah i envy you your job at times uh, I mean, but but it, your job's not something i could never do i mean I, i'm a blue collar worker <laughs> i hey it's blue it's it's essentially digital factory work at this point i i'm just i'm just sending units through the system at the at this point in the future, I hope it will be different. But for now, I enjoy the fact that I can just like plug in and listen to podcasts and lectures all day, every and debates all day, every day. Uh, unsolicited well, plug, if you want interesting, if you want to see debate in action, there. Go and check out Intelligence Squared and Intelligence Squared U.S. Intelligence Squared U.S. is a little more rapid fire and a little shorter, but those are. Those are very well put together and very well done uh, debate podcasts. And listeners, I, I encourage you to go enlighten yourselves with you know, all of the all of the content that they have available. MIT also has their open courseware. To, if, if you're looking to better educate yourself, you know, just you don't have to pay anything. You're not going to get anything but knowledge out of it. Yeah. But, Use it. Uh, anyway, uh, here's to the blue collar workers with white collar taste. Here's to the blue collar workers with white collar taste. Clink. Mm. Oh. That Godfather's pretty good. Oh, it is. Um, oh, I had another point I was going to make there. Um, oh, yeah. I was thinking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we all know that there is a, a mechanism in our constitution to amend it. And we don't make use enough of that as it is. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that throughout the course of this, this podcast. Not this episode, but in the, the general gist of it. But I really wish that there was a method for amending the Declaration of Independence. Because I do want to take a, <laughs> I, I do want to take a little bit issue with that phrase. Because I think that the pursuit of happiness is not necessarily... Like, here, here's the thing. What... What's happiness? Is it the kind of thing that you should be pursuing as an end in and of itself? I think that happiness is not a good in and of itself. It isn't something that you can go and seek out on its own. I think that it is a side effect, more like, of pursuing meaningful goals. And I think that's what was kind of meant when Thomas Jefferson I, wrote that phrase, but but I think it gets lost in the in the modern meaning of the word happiness. That I I, 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 I tend to yeah I, I tend to go with uh, um, the late great Christopher Hitchens. I tend to go with uh, his idea when he uh, he was once asked. He's like uh, he was asked a question, and he he the answer that he gave was pretty much boiled down to. If it had to come between being happy and being satisfied, you would rather be satisfied. 
Yeah. Not. No, that's fair. That's yeah. something that that I would rather be. I would rather be satisfied with with my entire life than be happy. Yeah. I mean, I could be on the losing end of a major war or losing end of something, but it's like, did I do my best? Did I put up a good fight? And if I can answer yes, then yes, I, I'm yeah. satisfied with what I did. But even, uh, even though it didn't win in the end, I'm still satisfied. I would amend it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning. And I'm not sure if that would change the course of American history at all or not. And I think part of the part of the problem I have with the pursuit of happiness as a phrase is to get back to one of our first points of the episode <laughs> is economists have kind of taken over in a certain sense. And they have happiness as a measure in certain certain conceptions of economics. And it, and it has to do with material well-being and I, your I feel like and, and and that's sort of like that's the measure of happiness and you're happy because you you're, you're taken care of and you have everything that you need economically and I everything feel like is ah. happiness happiness has been equated to materialism just in the same way as nationalism has been equated to patriotism in this country okay that's interesting that's interesting I'm flashing back to one of the classes I took as an undergrad. Uh, the professor was asked a question about, like, you know, you know, he's a political scientist, and he he was asked a question about, you know, how how do you how, how do you how, how do you make people happy? And he he completely was like, I have this. He was like, I don't really have any. How do you actually measure someone being happy? Like, and he did it in that kind of a voice. It's like I, like, I'm not sure what the economists have to have to really contribute to that because I'm not really sure what you mean when you say happy. It's like, mm. and that's yeah, and I I pretty much agree with that. And yeah, materialism has kind of taken over in a in a certain sense. Like. We, we, the profundity of life is lost in in that, and I think that's but a sign that we've lost touch with the values. It's it's honestly. not the economy that should matter. <laughs> what should matter is human dignity. Yeah, almost like does a per does a person have enough to be able to sustain their own life? Does a person have enough to be able to? pursue the things that they want to pursue that would give them that satisfaction in life. Like, do they, do they have the ability to fight, to fight for what is, what they think is right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so to get, kind of get back, we were talking about, so we've talked about liberty and justice. We've talked about the rule of law, separation of powers, compromise i think a really important one that is one that we don't we think about it a lot but but it's one that it's hard to think about clearly because i think it's a massive failure in our current system is an important value is equality before the law the the, the rule of law is one thing but Equality before the law, even if it has a constitutional amendment to back it up, is not something that is easy to live up to, let alone is it being lived up to. Because theoretically, wealth and station should not matter 
in a court of law or in your political candidacy. It is like to, to be a political candidate, look at the constitution. Like the only things that are required of you are citizenship status, residency and age. That's it. That's it. And then later in the constitution, they, they, they explicitly prohibit religious tests for political candidacy. That's really all you should be able to, that that's the only real qualifications you have there. But, in but practically speaking like theoretically that's the case but practically speaking that 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 is not something that we have in our system and i'm not sure how you would actually make it happen our our system is based upon american corporatism i mean we Uh. whoever has the most money is able to get elected yeah it seems like they're able to spend the most money to even have a chance at getting elected. Yeah. And then what it boils down to is money. And I feel like, again, that is us putting money ahead of the rule of law. It's putting money ahead of human dignity and human rights. Well, I think there's more to it than that. Uh, for, oh, very much so. For, for, for instance, uh, equality before... like One of the things about equality before the law is you should be able to take a rich or important person to court and be able to get exactly the same access to the justice system as as you would any other in, in, in any other situation but that isn't really the case your representation representation in court is to a certain extent tied to your material well-being you can buy it more is. justice if you can afford the best lawyers Take the public defender's office, yes, for example. Exactly. The public defender's office is just overwhelmed with the number of cases that they have to deal with that they can't. They are incapable and understaffed. They are incapable. Underfunded and overworked. Giving, yeah. yeah, they're incapable of giving their full attention to every single case. And this is a concept. Yeah, I'm sorry. Finish. Yeah, and because they are incapable of doing so, do the people who require public defenders are they actually given adequate representation in the courtroom and i don't think they are yeah in what sense can you call that a fair trial if you if you have a a sleep deprived public defender handling your case like over uh, underfunded overworked and i hate i'm just going to say potentially on purpose (laughs) i i i don't want to i don't want to jump too far into that because who knows what my future holds, but I, I mean, that's that that's something that like exactly. I, and how can you get a fair trial if you don't have decent representation? That that's something. You can't. Like that's something. If you exactly like uh, that, that goes beyond it. political candidacy. Like that that, that that's yeah. like if you're accused of a crime and you can't afford to hold a, a, a an attorney on retainer who can handle your case, you're you could be just run through the ringer at that point. You could. And I, I often think about how, what should we, what we should be doing in the American justice system is almost basing it on a percentage of income. Think for example, uh, getting a speeding ticket. Yeah. Would a $200 speeding ticket mean, uh, have a greater impact on the single mom who's working three jobs just to make ends meet or the $200 speeding ticket given to this rich guy in a Lambo 
that also has three other Lambos in his garage, you know, coming coming back from his bender because he's living off the interest of his millions and millions of dollars. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. And, like, we should be paying more attention to almost socioeconomic status in the courtroom when it comes to uh, equality under the law. Like it, That's an interesting people, idea. People should be should have to, if they're forced to pay a fine or something along those lines, it should have an equal impact upon their lives as opposed to an equal amount uh, dollar value-wise. It re- should have an equal impact. That's really interesting because I, I, I live in New York State, and just this past week I was hearing that the – the current state government on the Democratic side, they're talking about they want to do away with cash bail in the state. And it, it's that. essentially for that reason is that it is often used in just absolutely in just like I'm looking for the right word for this, but it, 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 it's it's abused in a way that people will not be able to post bail in an effective way. And also the, the there's some I don't want to get cancel that thought I I, I <laughs> the, false start the Godfather the go. Godfather has sent Luca Brasi after after my brain brain for that one but but the, but but no that that's an interesting develop in New York, a development in New York State is that they're talking about getting rid of cash bail I mean excessive bail is already addressed in the Bill of Rights and I'm not sure why New York State can't challenge challenge that maybe it's because it's in use in state courts and not necessarily um in federal cases maybe that's the Perhaps. maybe that's the reason but it's an idea that they're toying with and the idea is that it unfairly disadvantages the indigent i suppose is the word i would use it is it, yeah is twenty thousand dollars worth more to somebody whose whose annual income is thirty thousand dollars, or the millionaire? Yeah, I mean exactly, and that gets into. I mean, when when you can buy more justice if you can afford it, that gets into the the scarier area of a big corporation suing someone just for the sake of tying up their life and resources. I mean, that can be a 15 year commitment to fight a lawsuit. Very true. It's like, yeah, and that's something you can sue, you can sue us and you would win, but we are going to make it so expensive for you that it would be infeasible for you to, to pursue this lawsuit. Yeah. It's just, that's the type of justice system that we're living in. And it is a travesty of justice that in no way is justice. That is why I'm asking for equal. It would be equal sacrifice or equal impact upon one's life. I mean, again, talking about just a $200 speeding ticket is worth more to that single mom than it is worth to that millionaire. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. It should be about equal impact, not about equal amount. And I do agree with uh, getting rid of this cash bail or this these, these incredibly high uh, bail values. Because if somebody's paying twenty thousand dollars to get out of jail, it's going to be the rich guy, not not the poor guy. Yeah. And then uh, and then there's the entire uh, sub market of bail bonds 
Oh, where it's essentially a loan, almost extortion. Yeah, it's extortion. It's not a loan. It's yeah. extortion. You get a bounty. You get Boba Fett coming after you if you don't if you don't show up for court. You're um, no good to me, dead. <laughs> <laughs> no disintegrations. Would, would 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 the Disney people please get on like a film noir explaining how Boba like, like a film noir movie a side story explaining how Boba Fett got that reputation for Darth Vader to throw that line out? I have to and, go. I have to go with that idea that Boba Fett just sucks at his job secretly. That could be. <laughs> and when he says no disintegrations, yeah, he means because the last time was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was all a mistake. Cue the Benny Hill theme. Uh, well, <laughs> back on topic, onto politics. Yeah. <laughs> Away from Boba Fett well, and the Star Wars universe, which we love so much. Oh, yeah. it's um, Archetypes, man. Archetypes. <laughs> uh, well, back to equality before the law. I mean, th- 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 there's the legal representation side of it. But then, then we can get back into the, pol- the politics of it. I mean, political speech is now tied to your material well-being. The Citizens United Supreme Court decision made the mere Mm. act of spending money on proliferating an idea an act of political speech itself. So now political influence is commodified, and now the better off can buy better access to political power than we can in in the use of our voice. Citizens United... (laughs) To me, the Citizens United decision was possibly the single most dangerous yeah. Supreme Court case, the most dangerous Supreme Court case to our republic, like the, to the institutions, the values, and the stability and longevity of our republic. That, 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 it, I agree dangerous. with that. That, that is, is something we will talk case. about in far greater detail in a future show, but I will add that we will be lucky if the Citizens United decision was not a fatal blow to our system. I agree with that. I think some of the, I think that some of, just to give our preview, I suppose, dear listeners, I think that some of, some of the distortions that we've seen in this last election have been results of that. Now, well, so, I did not choose The Godfather as this, this episode's featured cocktail for no reason whatsoever. First of all, uh, first of all, do enlighten. First of all, the Godfather trilogy is on Netflix now, so I did binge watch that in the last couple of weeks. But also, it's fascinating to see that finally, we the the Mueller investigation and the the probe into what what influence Russian actors may have had in our 2016 election it may not be so much a a political action as it was a an oligarchical russian mafia money laundering operation and citizens united i think opened the door wide open to turning political advocacy into a money laundering operation imagine being able to to spend unlimited amounts anonymously for issue advocacy. Oh, definitely not connected with any campaign, even though we definitely saw both sides of the both sides of this campaign colluding quite quite technically legally, but not so technically uh, 
you know, de- de- definitely not not colluding with one another. The super like super PACs that were given this enormous power in the Citizens United case and political campaigns, they 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 have certain levels of communication, and those super PACs are now pretty pr- pretty. I-, I was surprised it took until 2016 for the money laundering. Uh, potential for those for those structures to really come to fruition. I, 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 I was I was predicting this as early as 2012, like going into the 2012 primaries. He was going I into was the, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like go, going into the 2012 primaries, like that was something. Like, oh, the Citizens United case, we're going to be talking about that a lot in the future. But that's just like the taste. So that it's like, a bad taste. It's a very bad taste. It's like somebody pissed in my Wheaties. That's what that is. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is the worst. Uh, I hate it when that happens. Well, <laughs> so yeah, so so now the equality of political speech is now out the window. If spending money on issue advocacy is speech itself, then. I, what chance do we have? We're, we're, we're a couple of fucking podcasters. <laughs> you know? Yep, that's it. Just us. This is for free. For the podcast. We're giving this to you for free, people. <laughs> um, and then, not to dominate this topic, but I had one more point that equality under the law also requires judicial independence. And I think that, at the very least, our perception of it is eroding. Like, Supreme Court justices are appointed with the hopes of being political pawns for the presidents who who anoint them. Lower courts are being more and more subject to the same kind of ideological cleansing. And now I worry that in the future, your political party affiliation or your ideological commitments will matter in courts of law exactly where they should not. Because you have to worry about, well, was this judge a Republican appointee or a Democratic appointee? How is that going to affect their bias in this case that I might be bringing? Like the ACLU might have to worry about bringing a case in front of a Republican appointee. We hope it does not turn out that way. But it's something that, like, the fact that we have to worry about that is bad enough. (laughs) This is... uh... This is all accumulating to uh, seems like the end times are upon us. I know, uh, which is really disappointing. But if the end times are upon us, it's up to people like Dan and I, and also to our listeners, all to, of you, uh, all of you, please to bring about a new republic, a better republic, and one that preserves the rule of law, the rights to. Uh, the right to be yourself, the right to a self-education, mm-hmm. and a government that is dedicated to the preservation of liberty. And with that... Well said. Well said. <laughs> we're, we're, we're nowhere near done with this, JT. Oh, of course we, not. <laughs> I, might need, I might need another drink here we, pretty soon. We might need to split this up into two episodes. Uh, yeah, this, actually, this is good. I like where this is going. Yeah, man. Well, speaking of equality before the law and that final point about judicial independence, I think another value that we sort of take for granted and I think is mattering sadly less and less these days is the value of evidence in our system. Yes. I have this laid out as... So there is a... There's a phrase that is known on yonder internets 
as Hitchens' dictum. Christopher Hitchens, the late author, political commentator, journalist, writer, all, all of that, uh, love him or hate him, he had this one line that I think really, it, it really sticks in my mind, which is, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. And and uh, I think that that is a very important value for us. I mean, our legal system is theoretically predicated on this idea. And when it's running, when our legal system is working properly, it runs on this. The accuser has the burden of proof against a defender, and the defender has the right to dispute the evidence, but eventually and ultimately there is a mechanism for settling that dispute. And respecting reality as we experience it is an important part of that. And I feel like this is another one that we're not really living up to. It's one of those that I feel like um, there there have been numerous cases where uh, a white man would shoot an unarmed black oh, man. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there are several cases, a bunch of cases where this has occurred. It's really unfortunate, and I, my heart goes out to the victims. But at the same time, I look at the, the actual case, I look at the evidence that is presented, and when eyewitness testimony is from witnesses who were not in the area at the time, uh, they were around the block, they didn't see the actual event happen. They were not, not a, and all these... Uh, these testimonies tend to differ, and then as a result, the uh, the person who supposedly shot this guy gets to go free. Uh, a lot of people are very angry. A lot of people are very happy for really different reasons. But in all honesty, I take a look at it and I say, like, well, was there enough evidence to convict this guy? If there was not enough evidence to convict this guy, as sometimes there is, which is unfortunate. I mean, like, our justice system is sort of working because if if the law can protect scum like that, you know, an absolutely deplorable human being, then the rest of us have nothing to worry about. Mm. But at the same time, we see a lot of this, uh, a lot of times these cases... These people actually did commit murder, and they're getting off. Mm. And it's it really upsets me to see that. But at the same time, am I really willing to compromise that that rule of law? Because as soon yeah. as you give an inch, they will take a mile. And you know that's it's a dangerous and slippery slope that we end up falling upon due to case precedent. Uh, yeah. A a coworker of mine, we we, we were talking about. Uh, I'm I'm applying to law schools right now, and we, we were talking about you know future possibilities for that. And he was saying that a, a friend of his is a public defender, and my coworker was asking him, you know, how can you defend these people who may have actually done you know very very reprehensible things and you know, all all that, and like he couldn't quite get his mind around the value of criminal defense and his friend the public defender responded in a way that i think absolutely just sums it up is that 
at that point you are defending the process. Defending the process is as important as that, as like the process has to be there for everyone. Um, what, what, what was it? Uh, oh, this is another one that Hitchens like beautifully quoted in one debate that I heard. There was a there's a scene in the play A Man for, uh, A Man for All Seasons, and it's uh, Sir Thomas More discussing with one of the one of the witch hunter inquisitors about you know. So, would you cut a great road through the law to get at the devil? Thomas More says, and the the inquisitor says, I would cut down every law in England to do that course it's a very it's a very worthy sentiment if you're if you're going after the devil you want to you want to do everything in your power to make sure that evil is done it's is done it's justice and thomas More said and when the devil turns around to meet you where will you take refuge with all the laws being flat and like that like that is an absolute like whoa it just hit me in the chest it's like boom i would give i would give the devil, the benefit of law for my own protection. Because once you cut away the the protections to get after truly reprehensible people who may have done truly reprehensible things, you open up the door for the kind of abuse that we try not to think of ourselves capable of, but that time and time again, we, we consistently prove ourselves capable of them and yeah we want like for instance john adams before before there was an american republic back when we were still colonies after the boston massacre john adams stood up and gave the british soldiers accused in the boston massacre a criminal defense he was their defense he was their defense attorney and that is that is our model my my dear listeners that is the sort of that is the an expression of a value system right there. It is that these these British soldiers, these lobsterbacks, they deserve a, <laughs> they deserve just as rigorous a defense in the name of the system itself as anyone else who may have been accused by a crime. Yep, that's <sighs> I've, I've said that before. Is mm-hmm. where is when. Due to case precedent, you've torn down all sense of legal defense for the accused person. Where will you be when the fascists come for you? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really disappointing that we don't have that value of equality under the law. That we everybody should is entitled to a defense. To a fair defense, a fair trial, uh, regardless of how heinous uh, and how much the evidence is presented. Like, we have the right, regardless of who we are, how rich we are, how poor we are, our, our religious beliefs, it doesn't matter. We are all entitled to a fair and public trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's one of those protections that we should never let go away and we should always and and for that reason we should uphold that protection for even the worst of us 
entirely so. I think another topic that does sort of need to be addressed in terms of uh, government values and the values of the American people is this idea of uh, military support. Uh, personally, I, I'm full support of our military, of, of the, uh, the men and women who, uh, who put their lives on their line for the sake of the country. It's a very selfless act. And they have my applause. But what I think we need to make the distinction of is separating the values of American military versus American militarism. Mm. Uh, sort of support the troops, not the war type of mentality. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times in the, uh, in the American public's eyes is that we, if you do not support militarism you do not support the military yeah yeah that's definitely it, something we've seen yeah. it, it sort of goes hand in hand with that uh, with the ideal of nationalism becoming equated with patriotism which i don't subscribe to at all i mean we uh if we are against if we are against american intervention overseas it shouldn't be seen as uh, we're against the members of the military, but it seems that we have equated it to that. Well, and I think that's yeah. Well, I, I think an important question, a follow-up question to that is, what does it actually mean to support the troops? Uh, I mean, you made the point that we try to separate the idea of supporting the war versus supporting the troops, but like especially under especially under the Bush years, and I think increasingly under under Dear Leader, supporting the war is how you support the troops, but what, what other options are there on the table at this point? What we really need to be doing is focusing on, if we're, if we're talking about spending money, we should be spending money to uh, increase the paychecks of our, uh, of our soldiers, our sailors, our Marines, Coast Guard, Air Force, etc. Um, we can focus on that, and we can focus on uh, the benefits that they get mm -hmm. after after they get out or after after serving. Uh, concentrating on the Veterans Association, etc., um, and making sure that they have a foot up and have something to come back to uh, after doing their time, after. Uh, going to war for the country uh we should be focusing on it's one of those rare examples where i actually really agree with uh with bernie sanders you know an outspoken mm. socialist uh i might disagree with him on many many other things but one of the things i agree with him on is if we are willing to spend billions of dollars to send young men men and women to war we should be willing to spend billions of dollars to, uh for their care when they come back. Absolutely. And, yeah. and to me, that that's supporting the military, supporting the, the people themselves. But when it comes to what we're actually doing overseas, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. be, be it clandestine operations or not, uh, it feels, I feel like the government wants to protect America's interests abroad economic interests especially oh yeah we see that we see that with neo-colonialism we saw we saw that uh going way back uh to 
the very beginning of post post World War II America, uh, where we're seeing domino theory. We we're using uh, we were using whatever methods possible to contain our political adversaries. Yeah, the, uh, the domino theory that wasn't true, like exactly a, a, after North Vietnam and South Vietnam realigned and yeah it was a communist nation but it didn't knock over a, a line of dominoes in southeast asia yeah right and i just think that the, there's this overwhelming sense that if you do not support america's militarism you do not support america's military yeah and that's I an interesting really, point and i really disagree with that like Same. You, you can yeah. be completely anti-war, but you can care for the people that actually do go out there and fight. Well, I think, like, I think the best thing that we can do for the veterans of of our wars is to see to it that in the future we do not increase their number willy-nilly. Like, the global war on terror is on our topics list, and we will get into more detail with that. But it's to our knowledge and our knowledge is in, is ever ever dwindling on this it's an indefinite war and it is now as secret as it is indefinite like we they can essentially do whatever they feel they need to do over the defense department uh over at the you know at the pentagon to to execute the war on terror and in the interest of not informing our enemies of what we are going to do, they don't have to tell us necessarily. But now we're just like, we're in a situation where now we're, our American troops are being put in harm's way in places that we might not even know about, as you said, clandestine or otherwise. And I think that that's one of the best things that we can do for our, for our troops is to not, to not use them incautiously. And exactly, American militarism We're, is something that should not be construed with with support for the we, military. We spend more on defense than so many other countries combined. Uh, our, our defense that's intentional too. Is, it's astronomical. Like we, and <laughs> it, it's like. I've I've often said in the past that what we're going through right now as a country is what I call post-Cold War depression. Huh. Post-Cold War depression, I, I think, is that for decades, America was gearing up for a fight with the Russians. We were fight, a fight against the biggest uh, superpower, the biggest communist superpower that was in you know, pretty much opposing our own uh, world viewpoint, our own capitalist system. And we were just gearing up for a fight. We were spending, 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 and we built up this gigantic military industrial complex. And now that the Cold War has ended, the uh, Union of Social Soviet Socialist Republics has fallen. And now we don't know what to do with this gigantic military. Mm. And now we keep pointing, we keep pointing it at different areas of the world, pretty much trying to justify maintaining such a gigantic military it's it's like the hammer in our toolbox that makes us see everywhere a nail 
you know yes that 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 old adage i mean it's just we we don't know what to do with ourselves well, this, now that our our biggest enemy has fallen th- this is one of the dangers of the idea of having a standing military to begin with i mean in the early I'm, okay let's go back to the 1790s <laughs> and make this as I pure love the 1790s as pure a system as possible but in those in that i those days it was assumed that military action would be taken by militias called uh, like there wasn't a standing army it was the states had a responsibility to to commit militias to federal need whenever the need arose under the guise of a congressional declaration of war another responsibility that has been completely abdicated in that's a a fact ever ever since world war ii we have not declared war we are. We have not officially been in a state of war since 1945. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that—that's something that needs to be addressed. And it really does. Yeah. It, it's. It, this is one of the dangers. Is that now that we have this enormous, this juggernaut of uh, a military, we feel a need to put it to use to justify its existence and to justify and, and to justify the investment that the the military industrial complex as you as you quite well defined it has has ingrained itself into our system to the point where it is in the interest of most of congress to perpetuate the military industrial complex what is it like something like 70 percent i i okay i am three drinks in and i i am not googling this as i say it but please if you have the actual statistic correct me right into cocktail party congress at gmail.com let us know the actual number but it, the last i heard my most recent reckoning is like 70 percent of congressional districts has a military contractor in it so that Whenever anybody comes forward with the with the idea of cutting away at not even just military spending for readiness, but like waste, like th- th- there's so much like active waste in the military budget that any time really is. I mean, yeah, it's the old story of the fifty dollar toilet seat. And yeah, the government the way the contracting government contract, oh contracting. the government contractors just take the government for a ride. Oh, contracting. And it's it's a really terrible system. I mean, we're paying millions of dollars when we can be spending tens of thousands. Uh, (laughs) Mercenaries, uh, I say. Mercenaries. That's what it really boils down to. And I feel like the military anymore, I I feel like in some cases, yes, we are defending uh, the American homeland. We are doing what needs to be done. But in other senses, I feel like we're almost exploiting it for economic purposes uh we're overthrowing dictators and putting up our own puppet dictators with the hopes that they will either a stabil uh, stabilize the region or b somehow get us some sort of economic benefit in return and to me that's that's not what our military should be used for mm. it should be used oh, for, no. for our defense not for just economic gain yeah 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 it's and then, to your original point, the supporting the troops... I think it's more about how support the troops has become the code for 
support the militarism. That like right. Yeah. I, that was essentially the point you were making in the originally. Yeah, is, like yeah. I, I don't want to support something that's you know, that's going to result in a lot of people killed just so that we can have cheap products in our marketplaces. Yeah, like that's that's not what America's military should be used for. And this is yeah. yeah. No, go on. I feel like a lot of what we're saying is boiling down to is we should not be willing to put uh, put our economy in front of human rights and human life and human dignity. And I mm. think that's that's what we've been doing for, for so many years. Yeah, or, or to put it another way, it's that economic systems are insufficient for the wise guidance of society and that if you're an economic system is only as good as the values that are separate from it that the people are living out and that's the important part of a value system is it's not just something that we can declare for ourselves and say oh these are our values and we are going to say this but our actions say something completely different our value system needs to be lived out and it needs to be lived out among all of us and an economic system doesn't answer all of those questions and when it tries to it usually leads to the sort of economic disparity that you see in unbridled capitalism or in the other side of it you see a communist system where if you're insufficiently bought in to the system you're going to get shot in the neck or sent to be worked to death in a work camp or anything like that like those are not value systems in and of themselves what we need no. to do is to take take heed of what actually brings us meaning and i think we've had a pretty pretty solid discussion of that tonight jt like that, that we have th th this has been this this is this has been a great one uh i've enjoyed a great way to I mean, what a great way to do episode three. Maybe that will be in the in the ear of in the ears of our listeners uh, to judge. But I thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation, and I am just absolutely excited to see to see where this goes from here. And oh, I'm wait. I'm really excited because this whole conversation has sort of opened up a lot of gateways for future episodes that I think I really look forward to exploring some of these topics that we brought up in further detail and further specificity. Try saying that while intoxicated. Specificity, specificity, incompetech. Try, try spelling incompetech.com three times fast. <laughs> I will not make that mistake tonight. All right. Uh, well, JT, I think we've had a pretty solid, pretty rambunctious discussion tonight. And I thought, oh, wait. Oh, shit. It, there's that sound again. There is. Uh, All right, listeners, if you have any comments, complaints, gripes, uh, praises, existential crises, moral dilemmas, I encourage you all to email at us, email us at cocktailpartycongress at gmail.com. And when you have a chance, visit our past episodes at uh, cocktailpartycongress.com. Yeah. Maybe, 
I know we'll be making some revisions to the website. Doesn't look like much right now, but we are working on it. Yeah, we're playing around with it. I mean, if you're not interested in looking at our just complete trash heap of a website, you can also find us on iTunes now. You can find us on Google Play. Uh, I, I, we will work on getting ourselves submitted to other uh, podcast aggregators as time goes on. And, of course, be like Olga. Write into us. Give us your feedback. Give us your cocktail Please, recommendations if you have them. Yes, we want it. <laughs> we might even feature your cocktail in a future episode. Oh, we want we want that because this is it's hard to keep up Get with. Get us drunk. <laughs> it's, it's such a good idea. And, as always, our intro music is Darksy Land by Kevin McLeod. Thanks, you can find- Kevin. Yes, thank you, Kevin, for your beautiful, beautiful royalty-free music. And uh, you can find more, you can find that track and more at his website, incomputech.com. And no, I'm not going to try to spell. I learned my lesson (laughs) in episode two. I'm not going to try to spell that off the top of my head, JT. You can find it in the show notes, (laughs) goddammit. Alrighty then. Well, well, until next time, listeners, we have our moment of clarity coming up. Yes. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please and think, think and drink responsibly. In vino veritas, my friends. In vino veritas. Listeners, we live in a nation divided. Our two-party system has moved away from a system where compromise is commonplace into one where compromise becomes a practical impossibility. Divided we stand, and divided we shall fall. We have allowed ourselves to fall into the trap of reactionary politics. The left becomes more left while the right becomes more right, as both sides demonize and vilify the opposition. This political climate will only lead to reactionary leader after reactionary leader and demagogue after demagogue unless we take initiative. The United States must become a proactive nation with a proactive government. A proactive nation uses reason and unwavering devotion to duty to act in the interests of all of its citizens. It does not drown out the voices of dissent, but rather it listens, it understands, and most importantly, it learns. Reactionary politics has given rise to the current climate of toxic populism, where sensationalism reigns and does so void of all reason. This polarizing climate has led to the vilification of all opposition. Neighbors will berate neighbors and cry out, If you are not with us, you are against us. Our willingness to accept the political party-led demonization of the opposition has destroyed political alliances between members of different parties, has put friends and family members at odds against each other, and has brought America's standing in the international community to the lowest possible level. These strained relationships have seemingly doomed our ability to compromise on even the simplest issue. Bipartisanship has gone from a willingness to work together to achieve a common goal to a willingness to hold the issues hostage and demand unconditional surrender. 
Sure, we are more than willing to hear the voices of the other side, but only for the smallest break in their voices so that we may interrupt with our own voices that we so love to hear the sound of. Just because we are willing to give equal airtime to the opposition does not mean that we are willing to listen, but more importantly, to understand the opposition. Many times have I found critics of communism spouting off against it without ever reading anything that Marx wrote. If we aim to present arguments against an idea, it is important that we come to understand that idea. Simply because we hear does not mean that we listen, and if we do not listen, we will never understand. Listeners, we can change this. We can bring our nation back onto a rightful course by being proactive. By doing so, we can bring leadership to the forefront of our national stage. The proactive leader does not ride the waves of populism nor crush the voices of dissent. The proactive leader unites rather than divides and always leads by example with the unwavering principles of honesty, integrity, and a steadfast willingness to listen and learn. By working to make our republic a proactive nation, we will be able to place reason above blind devotion and sensationalism. We would foster an environment where we are willing to admit our own mistakes and our wrongdoings and take action to better ourselves, better our laws, and act in the best interests of all of our citizens. We have a great potential and making America a proactive nation within the international community will elevate our status to the shining beacon of hope for the world that we have always hoped to be. Let us seize this opportunity and bring light to the darkness within ourselves so that we may be able to bring the light to our neighbors, to our nation, and to the world entire. If we are able to listen, we will be able to understand. If we are able to understand, we will be better able to work together for a better tomorrow. The Republic still stands.